Welcome to Rock Steady, an Express North podcast. And now our host, Dr. Fran Bartkowski. Welcome, Dean Dr. Jacqueline Mattis to Rocksteady at Express Newark at Rutgers University Newark. Thank you. Thank so, you. Dean Jackie, um, I'm so thrilled that we could find time in your very busy schedule for this conversation. Um, and I want to say to folks listening who may not know your name, that Jackie is one of the newest, newer, important, significant, inspirational leaders in our Rutgers Newark School of Arts and Sciences. She came to us as Dean as of July 1, 2020. In the good times BC before coronavirus. Arriving in the thick of the quarantine. Um, And so many people have yet to meet her in person. And when they do, she's just going to knock their socks off. As she did when we interviewed her in the search for a new dean of the School of Arts and Sciences in Newark. And I was privileged to be on that search committee. And Every step of the way of getting to know Jackie Mattis better has been just a thrill, a surprise, and as I said, truly an inspiration. Um, So, Jackie, what, you know, in in my conversations on Rocksteady, um, I begin in the present. And, of course, the obvious question. What has this been like for you to arrive in our world in this moment while also having a history in and with the city of Newark, which we're going to come to in the second part of our conversation. But seriously, take this up in any way that you were moved to talk about um, in terms of arriving when you did. And I just want listeners to know. Um, Jackie Mattis's PhD is in psychology. She is a social <laughs> psychologist coming to us at this time. Not only that, she's a social psychologist who writes about the African-American and the Afro-Caribbean communities, youth and adults, about compassion and empathy and forgiveness and altruism in those communities, not an angle most people think of first when they think about research in those communities. And that's an old and a very long story. So that's just some sense of what Jackie Mattis brings to this conversation. So July, 2020, you come to Newark. So first and foremost, thank you. It's, you know, you, you know that I love talking with you. Um, This has been very odd, beautifully odd in many ways, but odd. So the fact that I have a history in Newark, and it's a a relatively short history, but when I was at New York University, um, towards the end, the last seven years of my, my time there, 
my brother had moved to New Jersey. My older brother moved to New Jersey. And so my sister and I um, decided that we wanted to move to be closer to him and to, you know, my sister and all my nephews. And so, you know, that led me to leave New York City and, and to come here. And so coming to Newark in a time when it's vibrant and um, my mom was with, my mom was alive at the time. And so my mom lived with us. So the entire family was here. So the, Newark carries with it for me um, a, and New Jersey carries a sense of family mm. and a sense of connection and all of the things that come with that. So, you know, we would have Sunday dinners or Saturday dinners and Hanukkah and Christmas with my brother and, um, and with the, the extended family. So, so Newark is, is family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I left and went to Michigan for 14 years, uh, or no, for six years. Um, I was in New York for 14 years. So I went for six years and came back. And so coming back um, first with the expectation that family, that same family sensibility would be there and we get to see each other and the city would be, I would be able to be enveloped into the city and into this new space. Um, expecting that and coming into the isolation has been um, has been challenging. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm... I think of myself as an ambivert. I'm not a I'm not a true introvert. Um, although I do need time uh, I, when when I'm in people's presence, uh, I want to be fully there, and so I I'm like I am a hundred percent there with people. But I need yes, you I'm, are. I, I can attest to that. Ambivert? Did you yeah. say ambivert? Yeah, yeah. I it, love that. Did you coin that? No, no, ambiverts. So my my training actually is a, as a clinical psychologist. So I I um, worked as a clinical psychologist um, during grad school and then for a couple of years afterwards, and did a lot of work around domestic violence and community violence, um, and then shifted the the work that I was doing to look at positive development and then shifted towards being more of a personality and social psychologist in terms of the way that I think about the world mm-hmm. so I don't do therapy anymore um, with, with others. So um, a- ambivert is a, a psychological term. It's like those people who are positioned between being introverts and extroverts. So ambiverts can do um, extroverted things. Like you, you can be fully mm-hmm. engaged by people and fully energized by people, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm time to decompress. And um, for me, it takes substantial time to decompress because I am, um, I am a bit of an empath. Um, and so when I'm in people's presence and, and particularly with children, but mm. anyone, but, but, but particularly with kids, um, I am fully present for people's emotions. And so, um, and it's important to me to hold people's emotions and their stories with dignity, which means you've got to be fully present, right? So, mm, um, mm, yeah, so words mm. are positioned uh, in between. So the ambivert in me is is frustrated a, a bit <sighs> by the fact that I really want to spend time with my colleagues and with, you know, my colleagues both who are on the staff and, and on the faculty, but also I want to spend time with students. And I, I don't get to do that in the same way. I've, I've met very few students and right. that, that breaks right. my heart. And I'm so looking forward to that. So I'll be teaching a, uh, a flash course during spring break so that I get some oh. students. Um, well, and that will be on Zoom undoubtedly. On Zoom. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how that goes. And a flash course on what? Um, on um, positive psychology in urban spaces. So um, I want to, you know, positive psychology as a field has pretty much ignored 
both urban spaces and spaces generally. We don't think about places. Um, mm-hmm. And when, when we begin to think about, you know, empathy and compassion and forgiveness, and we also don't think about minoritized people. So a lot of the work in Positive Psych um, is centered on uh, college students, mostly white middle-class college students, and, you know, are centered around issues of happiness. And it mm. doesn't problematize whiteness, right? It, it presumes whiteness to be a homogenous thing, right? Where, where, mm. where every white person is middle-class and every white mm. person is, is privileged um, materially. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a flattened way of understanding whiteness. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't even contemplate people of color. in any meaningful way. Um, And so part of this is to sort of uh, think about uh, urban spaces are the most heterogeneous spaces in the United States, right? So you have people who are white and poor and Mm -hmm. white and first gen in terms of college education Mm -hmm. and, you know, Latinx and Native American and, you know, Filipino. So what does it mean when we bring the full spectrum of humanity mm. into the complexities of urban spaces with all of the ways in which urban spaces sort of impose surveillance strategies on people and coercive power and but also innovation because urban spaces are rife with innovation so what does it mean to be genius and what whatever your embodied self is in this space and what does it mean to be in a place that at least with some of these some of the larger urban spaces that we occupy mm. where you can be trans, right? And sometimes safe, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean when you you live the dualities and complexities of all of that? And who do you become and how do you become the best version of yourself in that? And how do mm. communities become the best versions of themselves in that? So um, we'll take up all those questions. In a flash course, which lasts exactly how long? Five days, you know. Five days, yeah. Just in so- a rock <laughs> world. Just in a rock world. That's what we're going to do. I'm just curious, are there any sort of popular culture creations that you are bringing to this class for students to engage with? Absolutely, yeah. Could, so you, could you say what? Maybe? I am an artist. Uh, well, I, I, I say this all the time. I do art. I don't think of myself as an artist because I was never, I'd never took an art class. But I We're going to come back to that. Yeah. Yes. And, and I love poetry. So the, I, when I'm teaching, I bring all of that into the classroom. So we look at murals and, mm-hmm. you know, talk about the, what it means when, when communities are silenced, they will find ways of articulating their inner selves. And if that's on a wall, if it's mm. on if, if it's on a sidewalk, if it's you know blaring music out loud in public spaces, people refuse to be made silent. And so when we're talking about where people articulate both their frustrations and their joys, we've got to look at all of the the text that exists in the public world. Mm-hmm. And that means poetry and, you know, um, again, music, art. So um, mm. I with all of that and ask students, um, they, you know, bring your playlist. Spotify is going to be right in the center of that. Oh, wow. We're gonna... Oh, oh, these lucky students. Do they know how lucky they will be to register and sign up for this one week with you? Oh, my goodness. I want to be one of them. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I may drag you into it. On Zoom, all things are possible in ways that they weren't before. Yeah. Yeah. The upside of these times. Okay. So 
Yeah. So you said it's been an odd time, but a beautifully odd time. And just to sort of tie up some of that circle of that conversation, you, you know, you talked about how few students you've met. Has it in fact been a time where the the familial has been possible in person some in this time, given that that's the New Jersey anchor on a personal level? To some degree, in a literal sense, to some degree, I don't see my family as much as I would want to um, because we're all trying to be responsible. Um, And, you know, my nephews are now adults and so they have their friendship cores and their pods and mixing pods just becomes really challenging. So that's been difficult. But I've been able to, and I don't know if if this would have been different under other times, I have been able to get to know the associate deans who I work with most closely more intimately in some ways because number one, in because we're in each other's home spaces, right? And that's, that's, that's sort of true. Sense. That's right. Um, and that's um they're extraordinary. They're just they're extraordinary people, right? They're mm. extraordinary in their roles, but they're extraordinary people. And so the that notion of um being invited into each other's home spaces simultaneously. Um, has been really wonderful in a way that wouldn't have been true if we worked in a common workspace, but then separated out into um, our home spaces in, in a, a very private way. Um, and that's that's been a, a really interesting part of, of things for me. And the same thing is true for faculty. I've yeah. been trying to meet faculty individually, um, in part because you know my my vision of being here has meant or as I was imagining initially would be like sitting down to coffee with my colleagues and just running into faculty or staff and saying, do you have 15 minutes? You want to come sit? Um, And so I get to do that over zoom. And again, I don't, I have the luxury of having um, very strong internet. So I I don't have to worry about most, most of the time shutting off my camera. And I've been intentional about not using, um, those screens, the, the backgrounds. Oh, backgrounds, yes. Um, and I, I definitely understand why people do, and I, I strongly encourage people to, to use them if they, they need them. But I, I don't use them in part because I'm intentional about who I meet with. Uh-huh. And I want to try to approximate something of the intimate. And for me, home space is so meaningful because it has to be such a place of peace that if I invite people into mm-hmm. that space, it's mm-hmm. not, I invite them with a certain kind of energy mm. and certain intentionality about building relationships. And that's really meaningful to me. So this yeah. is so interesting in terms of our very particular community, which has for so long been a commuter campus. Yeah. Yes. For faculty and for students, less yeah. so now. I mean, we have faculty living in the Haynes building, right? Yeah. We have faculty living in Newark more than before, but still socializing in people's homes yeah. was very rare in all my time yeah. here. Um, and we're not exactly socializing in each other's homes at all. Yeah. Talk about distance. But you're right that there is an intimacy about seeing each other in our home spaces yes. that we would never have had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I came to Rutgers having been at other small colleges where 
all the socializing went on at people's homes. It's like dinner parties, too many, you know? (laughs) And this, the contrast for me, I mean, I've often invited, had events at my home because I love doing that, but it's made it obvious how rare that is. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, I hadn't thought about how the remote life brings certain things much closer. Absolutely. Even it though does. we are remote. It does. These yeah. paradoxes, these ongoing paradoxes Absolutely. of the pandemic. Yeah. So um, is there, I, I would like to hear you talk about the place of art in your life, reflecting, revealing insofar as you wish. And I'll just say yesterday's Instagram feed mm-hmm. of the School of Arts and Sciences featured you. Introducing you, yes, as our new dean, but also as an artist. Yes. And and I love that it ended with you saying you would love to actually sometime take a painting class. Yeah. And yeah, so to fill some of that in for us, if you would. Yeah, you know, the, the so my mom, I got to learn how to draw and paint because of my mom. So my mom was a, a seamstress, and I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, she didn't have access to patterns often. And so, and she didn't work from patterns. So she would literally take an eight by 10 piece of paper and she would start sketching and then there would be a gown and, you know, sketch out the, the pearl patterns. And, um, she had my brothers and my sister and I, um, so pearls onto wedding gowns. Um, so that's what we would be doing very often when we were little on, on Saturday nights, like she would show us where, what the, what the pattern was. And then we would, um, hand sew cause we had, you know, little hands and, you know, Oh my goodness. Um, but my, so watching my mom do that and she would, you know, we loved paper dolls. My sister and I loved paper dolls, but didn't have access to them. So I grew up in Jamaica and they, they, they were just not as, um, available. So my mm. mom would draw paper dolls and then we would paint the clothes and she showed us how to create the tabs. It was great. It was really, really great. Um, so I grew up watching my mom do that. And when my mom didn't have childcare, um, she would get, she would take a stack of paper and then colored pencils or crayons and she would bring us and her, while she was working, we would have to sit and she would say, write a storybook and illustrate it. And then when I have a break, you're going to read it to me, right? And you're going to act it out. And so that's what we did. So I learned to draw because there was a goal. Mm. And my sister and I in particular, because we're very close in age, um, would, would do joint storybooks. So um, I learned that art was a mechanism for telling stories because it was what my mom did from the time we were three or four. Mm. Um, and it was a way of sort of bridging the gap between the silent story and then the spoken story and the acted story because mm-hmm. of how she sort of introduced us to that process. And so for me, like art has always been a pathway into peace. So when I'm most anxious, I paint or draw. Oh. When I miss people, I draw them or paint them. Um, and I do um, photorealistic um work but I also do sort of you know more abstract kinds of work and I don't really know what I'm doing because again I've never taken an art class so I just kind of um I have a, a sort of experience of there's already something on the page or on the canvas and I it, my job is to bridge between the thing I'm seeing 
and what ends up sort of showing up there, right? And um, there's always that frustration of like, uh-huh. it never quite gets at it and it changes as, you, as you're trying to, to do that work. But um, for me, that that's important. And spoken word is the same thing. It's just um, words matter to me in a particular way, but they also lodge in my head in a particular way. Um, mm that I have to kind of get it out. And when I'm most frustrated or um, isolated, I do spoken word. It's, it's And you do spoken word of your own poetry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, I don't do it as often now as I did when I was in graduate school, which was um, graduate school was a really difficult time for me. Not, not academically. Mm-hmm. Was, um, the furthest away from my family I'd ever been. And it was just a strange and in many ways when I was there, a hostile space. Mm. Um, and I needed to find a way of naming that. Um, and so poetry became a mechanism for me to do that. And I had these cohort, these members of my graduate school cohort who were in anthropology and other places, Mm. all of whom did spoken word. And so I got, um, pulled into that world. Um, Gina Ulysses, who's now a professor, um, at, uh, Wesleyan, and she's mm. an economic anthropologist, was mm. my spoken word colleague. Mm. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And it, am I correct that graduate school was at University of Michigan? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. And then you go back there. And then I go back there. Yeah, yeah the faculty member and administrator. Yeah. And yeah. what is, could you say a bit about, given what you just said about the climate, yeah. the cultural climate, the racial climate, the sense of that alienation so what was that when you returned insofar as you yeah care to say you know the even even with the the difficulty of being there as a graduate student um the difficulties i experienced of people you know faculty members making you know racist or sexist or homophobic comments and not even being aware of of very often of what they were saying or how problematic it was. In the midst of all of that, I also found home, right? So the chair of my my area um, of psychology at the time, Eric Berman, um, was a lifeline for me. And so the in my first year as a graduate student, he invited us home to celebrate Hanukkah with his family. And um, he was from Queens, right? Mm. So, and, and Eric looked like... Um, he's still alive. Eric looks like Einstein Uh (laughs) and he was an artist. And so like in a lot of ways we resonated, Um, but he became family and he made himself very intentionally family for me. And so he, that was the start of making specific connections. So Mm. in the midst of an environment that I found to be really hostile and problematic, I found places of home with people mm. who um, were very, very different from me in a lot of ways, but very similar in a lot of ways. Mm. And they became my lifeline. And that was what helped me be able to see love in the midst of hate. And that, that was what brought me back, was a recognition that goodness lived. And, and, and this was true for how my mom sort of helped us understand the world. Goodness lives everywhere. And it's our responsibility to grow and fertilize that, not to get um, caught up in perseverating about the the problematics of spaces. Like if you want to change something, you got to focus in on what do I grow here and what's the soil I can grow it in? And is it possible? And those, uh, the Eric Berman's of the world, the Robert Taylor's of the Mm. world, specific people who helped me realize 
it's possible to grow well here and grow good here. And so I, I went back, not, not, not necessarily out of a sense of altruism, but out of a sense of possibilities. That is so beautiful in terms of how that experience of yours also is a description of the kind of research yeah. that you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's me search. It's my, like, it's my family. Me. This, I, I, I am intent on studying things that made my grandmother and my mother possible. Mm. Right. Mm. The, like mm. the, the thing that always blew me away about my grandma and my mom and, you know, other people in my family um, was the, their unrelenting love and their insistence, their absolute insistence on treating people with great dignity and, you know, on sort of being forgiving in moments when I struggled with like, what is it? Like, really? You're going to forgive that? Mm. And, you know, they, they found a way and the watching the everydayness of that the, the ordinariness of goodness is what blows me away. Mm. And so mm. I'm, I think I'm spending a lot of my time trying to articulate as a science, the people who loved me into existence. Mm. How wonderfully said, beautifully said. Yeah. Um, one of these days, I hope I get to hear some of that spoken word poetry of yours in some at Express Newark, perhaps. <laughs> I, can, I can see it now as an event. So let's turn to, you know, to a, a future yet to come, but we know is coming. And the, the moment in your visit to campus yes. for your interview, yeah. where we went to dinner, at Marcus B&P, a restaurant I hope is coming back when we all come back. And then we toured through Express Newark. And um, I remember your kind of taking that in. So we haven't been able to be back there. Um, hardly anyone has, but we're keeping it alive in this form, for example. Yeah. Um, and I would love to hear anything you might sort of sketch out in terms of how you as um, a leader on campus, yeah. an artist on campus, a supporter of the arts on campus, when you think about how the arts can infuse the curriculum, the community, yeah the future of these spaces that we will be circulating in yes. again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Daydream for us about your place in that. Yeah. Reading your spoken word, leading, you know, alumni to the building, um, teaching a flash course in there, I, you know. All of that. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. Um, I don't think I'm even close to being clear on the range of possibilities. And so like, the, the very first moment, and you were the one who even suggested that um, I have a tour of that space, right? And it, the, the beauty of it, um, sitting, at, sitting in the restaurant um, and sort of winding up, 
One of the things that struck me about the entry into Express Newark, um, and you led the, you you literally physically led the path, was the surprise of it, mm -hmm. right? And that's part of the power of it. It's the you don't know what is above you, yes. And you don't. It's an entire world, and you don't know what amazingness lies above you until someone enters and then opens a door, and then you walk into the space where the energy changes. And the I remember walking down the the um, the hallway, and we walked towards Shine, mm -hmm. and seeing that larger than life image, and then walking in, and I think um, Salamisha Tillet's photographs were the first set of photographs that I saw when I walked into um, one of the spaces there. It was and, it was Shahrazad's photos, her sister. Yeah, Shahrazad, yeah. Shahrazad till its photos, yes. and that and that larger than life image of James Van Der Zee. Yeah, the you know who we associate with the Harlem Renaissance, but who had a photo studio right there on Halsey Street in Newark. Yeah, yeah. please go on. It, no, it's it, it's amazing. So walking in and the the images and. I'm so unused to walking into art spaces where the images look like me. Mm. And so, you know, walking in and seeing that, I remember there was one of Shirazad's photos, there was an African-American girl sitting on a throne. Um, and she just looked like the kind of um, unintentionally regal soul that only a 14 year old girl can be or a 15 year old girl. I don't even know how old she was, but the, so, so for me, as I think about the space and I think about what the possibilities are, I think about the surprise of this, that the city experiences or will experience a five-year-old and his or her mom or dad or grandmother or whoever is caring for, for the child walking into that space and being sort of blown away by images of this is who we are, regardless of who, who that that person is right mm -hmm. um i think about the sounds the cacophonous sounds that will come from kids and you know teenagers and adults running through the space and you know listening to music and making music and making things i remember that one of the, and i don't remember the name of the gentleman um he was making three-dimensional he was using the 3d printer oh yes carrie um, rosen probably yes mm -hmm. yes and so, you know, just thinking about all of the things that could be made that can serve the needs of community, but also just art pieces or um, whatever it might be that can be made in that space. So the utility of the space for meeting the needs of community. So I think I hear sounds and I smell, mm. I smell the smell mm. of, art of uh, cooking classes mm. um, and, and, you know, all of those kinds of things that can go on in that space. And the I I have an image of people sort of lined up at seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday waiting for the doors to open so that they can go to the thing, right? Um, so yeah, I'm 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 excited. I'm excited about what the possibilities are. You know, one of our faculty, um, Nipa Moitra, who's in physics, is um, launching a Saturday physics initiatives initiative and it's starting with tutoring but um they, they've also she and her colleagues have also talked about doing um a sort of introducing people to the liveliness of physics right and the, the fun of physics and i can imagine express newark being a place where you know teenagers and their parents and their friends come to just kind of see like what is it's saturday at nine right what's happening here what's happening today yeah yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, th this is uh, no one, 
No one yet has mentioned physics and cooking going on at Express Newark, but I love that combination. And I think there's much to be said for that, especially given Whole Foods on the ground floor. There's cooking going on there. Some kind of partnership. Never mind. Oh my goodness! It, it's, um, and and with the chemistry program, right? Like I think that the, the the opportunity to weave the STEM disciplines in with humanities, right, is is a powerful possibility. So to get people who do the physics of the the physics of food and the chemistry yeah. of food, um, doing a sort of a, a cooking class mm-hmm. and inviting families to come together to learn how to cook differently or cook the same using the principles of chemistry, what a wonderful way to learn chemistry, right? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, yeah, someone someone in New Brunswick in the chemistry department, I remember seeing, teaches a course on the chemistry of art, okay? Oh. Yeah, wow. and I thought, now there's an interesting marriage of the arts and sciences, yeah. and it would be so wonderful to see that kind of harmony, synergy, yes. you know, um, collaboration. Yeah. Um, a, you know, the arts as generally understood, but also the the branches yep. that could emerge from what the arts have. You know, we certainly have taken the arts in the direction of the social sciences whenever we talk about the arts and healing. Yeah. Right. Yes. And and why not yeah. the arts and you know the food of living? Yeah. Well, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. As uh, we think about how to do all of the work that we do differently, you know, um, a, a friend of mine, Wisdom Powell, who is at University of Connecticut, um, we often talk about the fact that universities very often continue to educate populations for the past. And it is, it's a, a, a terrible waste of resources, intellectual and otherwise. And we've got to really think about how we do our work differently, right? For a generation of young people who are genius, genius, but who require a different way of learning. Mm. And so, you know, mm. I can imagine a six-year-old who learns chemistry because she learned it cooking. Yeah. And who is no less masterful in her understanding of chemistry, but who understands it through the applied, through its applications in a world she lives in. And it's, so to teach things only in the abstract, mm-hmm. it's not pure, it's not more meaningful, it's often more distancing. And it means that a lot of people who could master those techniques and, and actually exceed every expectation around it will be lost simply because we choose a pathway that they can't follow, right? So if, we, if we're intentional about why not teach calculus to, you can teach calculus to a five-year-old, right? One of the things- Maybe that that's about, when somebody should have tried teaching it to me. <laughs> I, so growing up in Jamaica, um, you know, the school system is very different and it's different now than it was when I was a kid. But um, you were in primary school from the time that you were three until you were um, nine and a half. And at nine, you, nine or nine and a half, you took the, the national exam to see if you could go to high school. Right? Uh-huh. But in that, those six years of being in primary school, you- 
your mathematics classes cycled through early geometry and early algebra, right? And the the, um, national exam had geometry and algebra on it, right? Um, So you started learning algebra when you were five. There's no logical reason. Once you know basic numbers and you have the concept of something is missing, Uh that is X, right? Uh And you can solve (laughs) the missing thing. And there's, if, if no one tells you that they don't expect you to know it, you will simply know it because they scaffold it for you. So when, like kids are not genius. They're just understood. And they, they're the, 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 the sponginess of small yes. dreams yes. generally is appreciated and valued. And so there, there's no logical reason we can't teach to a six-year-old mm-hmm. algebra and to and teach them in a way like we learned algebra by finding things in the physical world. Oh wow. Where wow. Our would locate things and then we would have and, it, and they would talk about so this is the X. This is the this is the thing you're solving for. So you know yeah. I can imagine Express Newark being a place where we do that kind of work. I love these visions of yours. We are, I mean, we knew how lucky. We were to have you coming our way and everything since you've come just, you know, enhances, supports, confirms, affirms how, what a treasure you are in our world. Thank you. Jackie Mattis. You are very. I, I am, I really, you know, I have to say this. Um, I feel like getting to know you is will be is a sort of late career um, opportunity and gift of being at Rutgers Newark. Oh, I mean, we, you know, I'm thrilled. I I like you, and there there's so many amazing colleagues who are here. I'm. Yes. It's. Yes. It is such a mutual joy. It really is. I, well, I, and we have I'm some really phenomenal, phenomenal leaders. Yes. Women leaders. Yes. yes. Women of color yes. leaders in a way that is not so replicated in yes. so many other places. Absolutely. And, you know, that is part of what feels like the, the blessing of having, you know, had my career. 30 plus years career at Rutgers Newark and watching yeah. some of that, so much of that come to pass. So welcome. We are so Thank glad to have you. you. And I'm so glad people will listen to this and learn about who you are. It is such a joy being in your presence. And it's such a joy having you as I think of you as a friend. And so I just, I'm just joyful. So thank you for inviting me to have this conversation. And this seems like a great place to say this has been. Rocksteady at Express Newark at Rutgers Newark. Rocksteady is hosted by Dr. Fran Bartowski. Our engineer is Eric Johnson, and our marketing and promotion is done by Dana Demiani. Our theme music is Rocksteady, recorded by Aretha Franklin, and our outro is an original rendition by violinist Dr. Melanie Hill, a Rutgers Newark professor. This podcast is a project of Express Newark, a Rutgers Newark University community collaboratory. I'm not going